Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Roy Dennis Wildlife Foundation based in the Highlands of Scotland, working towards the restoration of species at home and abroad. And let's stop there with that phrase, the restoration of species. I use it every week at the start of the podcast, but this week it's particularly relevant as the State of Nature report in the UK tells us that one in seven species is threatened with extinction, confirming huge declines in the richness of wildlife in the last 50 years. This podcast is in its ninth week, and we gather that people who are new to wildlife conservation are starting to listen. So, to discuss what Roy and his team do, and to talk a bit more about the incredible adaptability of the ospreys, which have been a large part of his life over all those 50 years, I'm talking with Roy on the shores of Loch Indorb, near our home. Those red grouse are lovely, aren't they? Mm. I love this place. It's a, a gorgeous loch in a bowl of moorland. And it's always different, isn't it, when you come past? The light is always different on the water. It's absolutely superb place, Loch Indorb, with that ancient castle where the wolf of Badenoch lived many, many centuries ago. It's a big lock, but nevertheless, it can completely freeze over. And then when it breaks, you know, you get a wind from the west, a bit of warmth, the lock starts to break, and then the ice piles up into this end of the lock. So lock and door, what, what does it mean to you? It's always been a place more to do with black-throated divers and ducks. But at times, it's been really good for ospreys. And we had a particular osprey that used to come here, Green 2E, and that that time, probably about 10 years ago, there were a lot of small trout in this lot. And so if you came here, you had a good chance of seeing ospreys catching them. And because they were small, the birds would just skim in and grab it and away. And then sometime in the past, some of these fishermen released pike into this lot. And they'd basically eaten all the small trout. And so it's rare to see an osprey fishing here now. Now, I'm not a sentimental person, Roy. And that was interesting, but I thought you might say, well, it's where we got married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could have done, I suppose. It was down there on that headland. Yeah, it, yeah, too late now. You've talked about trout. <laughs> <laughs> OK. But that does sum up... This podcast, I suppose, because I'm a complete non-birder, married to somebody who has spent his whole life working with birds and wildlife. And every week I say, we're working towards the restoration of species. I use a generous we there. We're working towards the restoration of species. What does that actually mean day to day? I mean, I suppose the killer question is, Roy, what have you spent your life doing? Well, making life better for wildlife. And so we see where a bird is missing like the red kite you know there were no red kites in England and Wales and a big project run by the RSPB and the then Nature Conservancy um, restored them to really throughout England and Wales and Scotland whereas in the past had just been that tiny population in Wales you know you can look at things like the increase of ospreys from one pair in 1960 to well over 300 pairs now. So we, although we've had some terrible losses, you know, in 1960, these fields would have been full of lapwings. Um, there would have been more curlew and, and birds like that have declined. But we have kind of restored some uh, that were lost, you know, the, the sea eagle, 
Um, but we've also changed people's thinking about, you know, the requirement that these bear moors should not be like this. They used, this once was a great forest, and our ancient ancestors would have burnt it down for their grazing animals. And more and more of it was turned into what many of us regard as a degraded wasteland. And now suddenly the idea of rewilding it, restoring woodland, uh, which is so important for the future, um, not just for the earth, but also for our grandchildren and our grandchildren's children. It's a really nice grouse calling. You know, this is uh, the first few days of October and the grouse kind of have this uh, nearly like a, an autumn short period which is a bit like spring so they display a bit and then of course they go into their winter and it's not until next spring when they really start calling again. We're in this crossover time where the focus when we're talking about osprey has shifted very firmly from here to Africa. Um, the birds are on migration. We heard last week about car being predated in Morocco the, the bird, one of the two birds you were satellite tracking. But you had some interesting news this week about what happened to that bird. Yes, because yesterday, Mohamed Radi, who had been there and found it and took a group of his students there, uh, sent in a video of it, of the remains. And as soon as I looked at it, I knew it wasn't a jackal or a dog or a fox that had killed it. It was actually a bird of prey and almost certainly uh, an eagle owl because when you look at the remains of a of a predated bird the mammals kind of tear the feathers out and they break them whereas birds pull them out carefully so they're still perfect and then when they eat the carcass they eat it very carefully and so I could see that the wing bones were still connected to the keel whereas if it had been a mammal they would have just crunched it all up and that has been a problem for ospreys on migration. The eagle owl at night can catch a bird which is roosting in, you know, a precarious position. And I remember one of the earlier ones from Rutland Water, which was killed by an eagle owl on a ridge in the Sahara. So an eagle owl killing it is even more natural than a stray dog. And of course, the children who are following Carr from Carbridge Primary are now following Desha, his sister, uh, along with the children from Desha Primary. So they'll be doing the same thing. They'll be tracking this surviving osprey. And that bird has more or less, more or less settled where it's going to be? Uh, uh, settled, but not really settled. It's in what we call the Casamanche in southern Senegal, south of Gambia. And I noticed yesterday, looking at the tracks, that the bird was actually still moving up and down the coast a lot, maybe, maybe 20 miles, which is quite different to its parents. The male and female, if their migration was successful, would have gone back to exactly the same tree. One could be in Senegal, one could be in Mauritania, or an old... Uh, branch on the on the shore of the Atlantic and it would be at the same place that it was last year so they go straight back to their favorite perch where they know the fishing is good whereas that young one has still got to learn where it should choose 
as its future wintering site. And all the time it will be chivied by adults that don't want it to be taking over their space. I first went to Gambia in West Africa in 1977 as, a, as an assistant to Hugh Miles, the famous wildlife cameraman who was making a film about the osprey for the RSPB. It was a groundbreaking film. And Hugh would sit out all day in a hide somewhere on these beaches. And my job was to put him in a hide and bring him out. So I spent a lot of time sitting on sunny beaches. <laughs> but what I remember was that I spent my time recording every osprey I saw, what it was doing, uh, how long it took to fish and so on. And what was interesting, I never saw a juvenile. I, I never saw one. And I thought that's strange. I thought, I don't understand this. And I hadn't realised until later that the adults grab all the best places and the young ones have to find other places. So while we're saying, great, Desha has got where she's going to go, actually her problems may just be starting in a way. She's survived the migration, but they have to fight to get their space. They have to fight to get their space. And, uh, and do they come to harm? Do the other ospreys actually physically fight them off? Mm, not usually. Right. Um, but they do chase them, and they tend then to find... The poorer quality habitats, they're, they're much better off if they arrive in West Africa and find that there's a lot of flooded land, that it's been a wet season. And these temporal wetlands can be good for fish and the birds, the young birds will go there. But then slowly they dry up. But the big change is when the adults all leave in March to head north to, the, to northern Europe, then those young ones have the choice of everywhere. And if they can then muscle in on a particular place, and when the adults come back in the autumn, they've already start bold enough to defend it, then that will be their future winter home. Now we've heard in this podcast before from Junkum Jadama or JJ, who's a great bird watcher in the Gambia. And it's the turn of the season there, of course. It's just starting for them. And he's going out every day looking for, I suppose, what we must stop calling our ospreys, their ospreys, as they arrive from Europe. Yeah, winter is just at the corner. Birds are migrating from different parts of Europe, coming to Africa. Birding time is at the corner. It's already October. At this juncture, I have my binocular with me going around to see if ospreys arrive in my area, especially in Tanjemas, where you see 10, 15 ospreys sitting on the marsh, some flying over you with their fish, some isolated, like young ospreys, because they're always isolated from the other one, taking their place in the woodland. We are expecting more between end of November to beginning of January. When they arrive in the country, they found it very different. They are always scared of the adult ospreys, and that's why they are always isolated 
most of the time you see most single ospreys in the in the uh, creeks because they are first winter visitors. But as long as they did one year, the second year before they are returned, they will start fishing in the sea and and, and bring their prey on the on the land. Of course, what I forget also when I talk about ospreys with you is that every osprey is an individual and they have different traits, different habits, different abilities. And I was here at Lockendorp with Mike Crutch, who's a local photographer who works with you sometimes, who's a great bird watcher, and has spent hours obviously observing the habits of individual birds trying to get that great shot. And he was telling me after hours of observation of these birds, obviously how very different they can be. There is one bird I've watched quite regularly in the last few years. He's got a, a, a blue colouring, he's blue AU6. And when he first appeared at the locker that I go to as a three-year-old, he would come in from about 70 feet up, whereas most birds will tip their wings around about 30, 40 feet up. So he's coming in high to start off with. And he's hitting the water at one hell of a rate, obviously, with the kinetic energy that he's got stored in him from coming in from such a height. And inevitably he would miss that fish and he'll shake himself dry and he'll go round again and he'll keep repeating and repeating. But what was interesting to see is that because of the speed that he was hitting the water at, his feather wear was like that of a breeding female. Quite soon enough, because of the sheer speed that was putting the feathers apart, he's left feathers behind and almost hit the side of the locker and things like that. Um, yeah, it's been quite interesting just to see how bird, once it has actually developed its technique, not necessarily the optimum in the osprey world, pretty much stays with it. And he's still like it to this day, even though he's now got a family and he's providing for them. And that difference in skill, I suppose, is carried with them on migration. They have different abilities. Very different. I remember once on that trip to Gambia in 1977, there was one place that Hugh particularly liked and there was a little river going into the, the Atlantic Ocean and there was a bridge and I sat on a point and I counted as soon as an osprey came over the bridge I timed it and it was how many dives it did and how long did it take to catch a fish and one day I was there and I was watching this bird which was a complete duffer and I remember it took 33 dives to catch a fish and then it headed inland to eat it and while it was doing that because it kept on having to rest and dry out another osprey sailed over the bridge went straight into the water came out with two fish <laughs> one which it dropped it's just unnecessary isn't and it? in 90 seconds it was flying back uh, to the wood to eat it so there you see a tremendous difference. The other interesting thing is uh, something I noticed on a later trip to Senegal is that when you see the ospreys diving in Scotland, quite often they're, they're nearly submerged. You know, they're catching a big fish and bringing it out, big trout. But down there, in one particular place we went to in the big national park in Senegal and an island called Bird Island... <laughs> Um, the ospreys were diving at a much lower angle and grabbing the mullet and flying out without landing in the water. And I think those birds had realised that if you catch fish in Africa 
and you submerge yourself in the water and flop around, you might get killed by a crocodile. Whereas there's no crocodiles in the locks up here. So I think they probably were changing their hunting behaviour because of the risks. But of course, that learning process probably costs quite a few juveniles their life while they're finding that out. Yeah, well, by chance, um, Africans who had killed crocodiles and cut them up had reported two of our birds from their colourings inside the stomachs of uh, crocodiles in West Africa. And the ospreys have to adapt to a different climate, a different location, but of course the place itself changes too. Yeah, it's changed a lot, you know. I went down a few years ago uh, with the BBC Autumn Watch people because we were tracking a bird. And I was amazed, actually, because when I was with Hugh in 1977, I remember driving along this little sandy track through the trees to get to a fishing village called Tangi. Tangi now is a massive place. It's kind of grown, there's tarmac roads. Of course, development occurs in every country, but I was amazed at the changes on that coast. And I also recognise that since I was there, when catching fish seems so easy, that European boats are now trawling offshore. Even boats from Scotland go to West Africa now. And that must be putting pressure on the inshore fisheries. And then this last time, I was told that the Chinese are there, kind of hoovering up fish and turning it into fish meal and, and other fish products. And so the future looked to me really worrying, first of all for the locals about getting enough fish for them to eat and their families to eat, uh, but in the long term the pressure on a bird like the osprey. So you go in one very short step really from talking about these birds in a kind of intellectual, interesting kind of way to the reality of what's happening to the planet and to people's livelihoods there. Oh, oh yeah. And, uh, you know, when I think of someone like JJ, you know, he he's teaching these young people. And I remember Tim McCrill took me along one year to a uh, school at, in Tanji where they were handing over a laptop so that the children could talk to children in Rutland Water and other places. And they were said, well, we're going to go along to this school. And I'm thinking about Logie Primary School with 30 children. I was absolutely astonished at the numbers of people on those coasts. And uh, the idea now that JJ and other people are talking to them, and they undoubtedly are talking about the future of the earth. And it's encouraging that people there as well as here are worried about the amount of plastic along the coast and gathering it up. And uh, I think the osprey helps in that way to kind of talk about a much bigger issue to do with the protection and conservation of the planet. And you can follow Desha's continuing progress in Africa via maps on the Foundation's website, www.roydennis.org. More information about the restoration of species and case studies on projects carried out by Roy and his team are on the website too. Previous podcasts in this series have followed them as they worked on a reintroduction project with sea eagles on the Isle of Wight and on the translocation of osprey chicks to Poole Harbour, so you might want to catch up with those. 
Thank you for listening and thank you for sharing this, especially with people who want to hear that something can be done for species in decline. The music is Realness by Kai Engel and is downloadable from the Free Music Archive. <laughs>